Good morning. It's a wonderful privilege and honor to be able to speak to you from the book of Leviticus uh, following Pastor Errol's message about the offerings being thank offerings and I'm sorry offerings and Pastor Brent last week talking about the different feasts and how all of that points to Jesus. And so we're going to look at the uh, idea of the anointing of uh, Aaron and his sons and uh, we'll be thinking about this idea that grace prevails. Now, I don't know when the idea of priest began. It began very, very early in the ancient world. Uh, but we know at least that Abraham, who was the father of Israel, uh, went to Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, to offer his offerings in thanks for the victory over uh, Lot's enemies when they took uh, Lot as a hostage. And no doubt the people groups around Abraham and the people of Israel during that day had their own priesthood. So it seems as if people from the very earliest times realized that they needed to have someone between them and this God that we just saw in the clip. Now in Leviticus, we see that God is bringing some order to this whole concept of sacrifice because the people of Israel had been slaves for 400 years in a foreign land. And uh, so being slaves, they didn't really know how to act on their own. They didn't have their own culture. They didn't have their own societal norms and so forth. And so God gives them this offering structure to help them understand who they were in reference to God himself. And uh, they needed that because the, the sacrifices that they were used to seeing were really quite grotesque getting even to the point, as Pastor Errol has reminded us several times, where they actually started uh, sacrificing their own children, maybe more than one child, to these pagan gods. And that was something that God absolutely detested. He hated that. And so in Leviticus, God orders five different offerings that the people were to bring in addition to the required feast offerings and the Day of Atonement, the feasts that were required, of course, were Passover, and then the Feast of Weeks, we call Shavuot, and then the uh, Feast of Tabernacles or Tents is called uh, the uh, Sukkot. Those three feasts were required for people to come to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices. Day of Atonement sacrifice would be made for them. Today, we're going to see Aaron and his sons anointed and then ordained with these five different offerings. So let's, uh, as always, we'll look at our central truth and it will uh, guide us today. And here it is, the law was doomed to fail, but God's grace would prevail. Uh, thanks to Pastor Nick for that uh, central truth as I was talking with him earlier this week and also Pastor Brent. He said, how about this? And I said, that'll work. I can use that one. And so a big thank you to him. At first glance, it seems as if God is a little bit unfair uh, that he would require something that was so difficult to keep. But as we've seen in the last two weeks, all of those offerings and all of those feasts pointed to Jesus. And in him, God's grace would prevail. You see, the system of offerings and cleansings were so complex that it practically took a dictionary or encyclopedia or a chart to figure them out. And most of the people could, couldn't read or there wasn't anything for them to read. 
And they had to rely on the priests to teach them from time to time about God's requirements and the offerings and so forth. But there were no organized teaching groups. There were no, back in in those days, there were no synagogues. There were no Saturday classes. And so they had to rely on the priests, and they'd go to the priests, and they'd ask them questions. It'd be a little bit like me if I were your priest, and I am one of your pastors, and you were to come to me, and you say, well, you know, what do I do about this? You know, did I eat a forbidden fruit or or, uh, food or, or not? And probably as your pastor, like I do sometimes now, I would come to you, don't forget, you know. I especially go to men, don't forget, masters, men, <laughs> you know. But uh, in any case, this complicated things uh, significantly, just never knowing what kind of sacrifice should I, and so forth. So, um, not only was it extremely complex, but it was really impractical, or you could say difficult, hard, to say the least. How did people make the time to travel long distances to make their sacrifice. Well, it was an agrarian society, and so they weren't working all the time, I suppose, but still to go from Megiddo down to Jerusalem, because all the sacrifices had to be made in Jerusalem, was quite an ordeal. To go from Dan way up in the north and the Golan Heights was a long, long trip over very mountainous and marshy lands, and it was just difficult. So the truth is that most of the people didn't do it. They stayed away. They stayed home. Weeks, months, they weren't about to come down to Jerusalem all the time. So most of the time they came to the required feast, if they did that, and certainly made an effort to come to the Day of Atonement, but even then they didn't even do that. And so we learn that from uh, the book of Judges that by by the end of Joshua's time, you got Moses, then you've got Joshua. And in the Judges, it says that the people began to fall away and they began to worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And they forsook the offerings in Jerusalem. Well, you know, it was easier. You know, uh, you could go, you could have an, an altar right in your own backyard. Put an animal on it, light it up, and, you know, and, and that was good. And they had some really pagan practices that, that, were really extremely sinful, but, you know, if if you weren't in tune with sin and holiness, you were making a sacrifice. That ought to be good enough. That's literally how it went. And I talked to an Old Testament scholar, Igor Swiderski, who is one of our missionaries to Germany working among Jews, uh, about these different offerings, and that's essentially what he shared with me. And so, if I'm right, This situation begs the question, why did God establish a system that he knew would not work, that would fail? Well, let me ask you another question. Why would he establish one easy, simple rule in the Garden of Eden that he knew the people wouldn't obey? He knew Adam and Eve wouldn't obey. See, we can't always understand all of the thoughts of God, sovereignty of God, his plan. He did have a plan, absolutely. He told them his plan from the very beginning. Some of them passed that on. They understood it. Well, uh, here are some thoughts. By the way, there's nothing wrong with God's law. There's everything wrong about God's people. So, what 
what was the purpose of all of this? Well, let's look at it, doomed to fail. The purpose of the offerings was to be a daily reminder of God's holiness and the people's sinfulness. We saw that in the clip. That's just basic. That's the, the whole book of Leviticus, the offerings and so forth, to show us the God's holiness and the people's sinfulness. Every year, the priests made 1,231 sacrifices of animals just to meet the daily requirements and other regulations. That's about 100 a month, 25, 30 a week, and that didn't count whatever offerings the people brought. So there were many, many offerings, this constant daily reminder, smoke going up from the altar and so forth. And these sacrifices then were a constant reminder to the people that their sins kept them from fellowship with a God who wanted to be near them. That's a key thought. God wants to be near his people. And I think the failure of the system was gradual. As we said, by the time Joshua, uh, uh, you know, finished his stuff, it was pretty much in place. They'd abandoned the law. And I, at first, I believe the people were fairly diligent in practicing their faith, and their local priests probably kept them up on the importance of staying in fellowship with God. But by the time of King Joash, which is 100 years from the time that the temple from Solomon uh, was built, the temple was in such disrepair that it was essentially useless. And so they did their repairs uh, with Joash, the big Joash box, and people brought their offerings, and gradually they repaired it. 200 years later, under King Josiah, it was again in unbelievably, unbelievable disrepair. It wasn't being used. And as a matter of fact, the priest came with excitement to Josiah, and he said, look what we found. We found the Torah. They hadn't even known about the Torah. They hadn't been reading it. They were going by rote in terms of those offerings. But it was, certainly wasn't primary, wasn't uh, something really important in the life of Israel. And so today we want to look at how it all started. How did this change from slavery, now an ordered society, a new people, how did that priesthood begin? And so let's look at the key verses in Leviticus chapter 8. By the way, that's the introduction, so we're finished with the introduction now, okay? <laughs> now then, so we read. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. I mean, he wanted to be really thorough seven times on everything, every little jar, every uh, you know, scooper, whatever it took, they got sprinkled. He was very intense about it. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. It was quite a bit of oil. It flowed down his head, and he just stood there while the oil was coming down, and it came down to his waist, down to the... And it was as if to say, just, I'm anointing all of you. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, put headbands on them as the Lord commanded Moses, and he sprinkled them with oil as well. And what follows then is a series of five offerings that Moses makes for Aaron and his sons. And some scholars think that Moses did all five offerings all seven days. 
Very interesting. We don't know because I looked and looked and looked, and the text is just not clear about that. So let's note some of the factors in these offerings without going into all the details, which are not necessary for our purposes today. If I were to go into the purpose of the Urim and the Thummim and the Ephod and and so forth and all of the vestments, and it, it would take us the rest of the morning. But let's just look at the key thoughts here, especially with regard to, say, the sin offering. Aaron and his sons pressed down hard on the head of the bull. Now, let me just take a break here. Uh, When I read that in the past, before really studying it seriously, I I would just assume that they would come and they'd, you know, place their hand on the the top of the bull and, you know, that'd be it. But that's not, the, the Hebrew word means that they pressed down hard. They were basically saying, I really do what I'm saying here. I know this bull is going to die in my place. I should die for my own sin. I'm pressing down. I understand this. And um, they do that they should be dying for their own sin. God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And sin brought about death. And then the burnt offering, the blood was applied to the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe, signifying I'm consecrating all of myself to the Lord. And that reminds me of Erwin Lutzer from uh, the Moody Church. And uh, on the radio, I heard him say one morning, every morning before his feet hit the ground, he says to the Lord, all of me, for all of you, at my expense. And in other words, a living sacrifice. In essence, that's what Aaron was saying here. All of me for all of you. And then the wave offering of grain, and then there was an animal uh, along with that, was to be eaten in the tabernacle as a way to indicate God's desire for intimate fellowship with them. And so in chapter 9, we find that Moses transfers the duty of the high priest to Aaron and his sons who helped him, and he repeats the offerings before the people. Let's see what happened next. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And now he's officially the priest. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, perhaps to talk to God one more time, pray to God. When they came out, they blessed the people again. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. We don't know in what form the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, but we do know what happened next demonstrated the glory of God, believe me. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. They shouted for joy, I think some, in some ways, so, because they weren't dead. <laughs> they, you know, have you ever seen a, a lightning bolt come really near you, like on a tree near your house? How does it sound? It scares you half to death, right? And, uh, and they were also, I think, joyful because they knew that God was pleased with the sacrifice. And then they fell face down before this awesome God. Wow. They all got it, Right? They all got it. Surely they recognize the the power and holy otherness of God. And I hope they understood why all these sacrifices were being made. Their sins caused these animals to die. 
The animals hadn't done anything deserving death. They were innocent victims. But all this euphoria, all this joy, all this understanding didn't last very long. In fact, it didn't last past the next day. Look at what happened. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. That's something like a dish. Uh, put fire in them and added incense. And they offer, offered unauthorized, or some translations say strange fire, before the Lord. Now, we don't know what that unauthorized or strange fire was. We really don't. But, uh, but let's look. The fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now think of this. These guys had been in the presence of God in a unique way for seven days at least in the holy place. They ate with God. Now, we don't know if Jesus was actually present. He had been present with them on Mount Sinai. That's clear. It's called a Christophany. And perhaps God came and ate with them, much as Jesus walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, but, and so eating often relates to this intimacy of fellowship. Have you ever noticed you don't get meals too much on airplanes anymore, but if you travel a long distance like to Israel, you get two or three meals on the plane. It's very interesting that as the meals are being served, suddenly there's all kinds of chatter that takes place. You hear it all over the airplane. You're talking to people you don't even know. Why? Because you're eating. And so this signified the intimacy, the closeness that God just craves with his people. And these sons had gone through the solemn ceremonies of anointing and consecration. And they saw God's pleasure with the sacrifices they made. Imagine watching fire come down from heaven to consume the sacrifice that they made, and yet this happens. Again, no one knows what that strange fire was, but they possibly used fire from their own cups, their own censers instead of the fire that was to never go out in the tabernacle. But we know that they were clearly disobedient or careless with how they had been instructed. Seven days they were taught how it was supposed to be done. You see why the law was doomed to failure? Not only was it complex and expensive, and hard to keep, but it had frail human beings in charge of it. And it was going to get worse. Now notice God's summation of all of this. The lesson God wanted everyone to know. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself Holy, in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. You bet he remained silent. He knew better than to talk back to God. He knew better than to question God. His, his sons had just been killed by God, and yet he remained silent because he knew 
but his sons had disobeyed. Now, this isn't conjecture. It's right in the text. Perhaps uh, it's shown in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. Maybe the, they were killed because they were, they were full of alcohol or they, they, they were drunken. Um, Moses hints at this in verses 8 through 10. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You must distinguish between the holy and the common. They had treated this offering as if it was just nothing important, no big deal. They brought their own fire. Between the clean and the unclean, and you must teach Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. So what does all this mean? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's find out. We need to start with a very real truth from the whole book of Leviticus found in chapters 11, 19, 20, twice in chapter 20, and then followed up with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, you must be holy because I am holy. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a, I hope you'll get, get on to this. This is a command that rules today. You must be holy because he is holy. And the 613 different laws and requirements weren't going to get them there. The law was doomed to fail, but God's grace would prevail. Now, this was bad enough, 613 different laws. But then they added to it. And they would go to the priests and they'd say, well, what about this? What about this? They did it to Moses all the time. And so... They, they accrued different laws and meanings and understandings. And by the time of Jesus, it was really bad. And so Jesus, in, in his teaching, says the people heard him gladly because he taught with authority. And so what would happen is that the rabbis would teach not with authority. They would say, well, you heard this rabbi say, and you heard this rabbi say, and Jesus comes along and he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, in other words, he was correctly interpreting what God had said, what God had meant in the Old Testament. So, it's pretty much the same today. The Orthodox Jews, if you go to Jerusalem today and you're there on a Sabbath, very interesting that uh, all, every elevator but one, they have one elevator for non-Jews, and there you can, you know, press that elevator and, and get to your floor. But in all the other elevators, uh, you go in and it stops at every floor. And the reason for that is it would be work for you to press the button. <laughs> and worse, there would be fire that would out of electricity, and so you're making fire and you're pressing the button and you've worked two times, and so you have to stop at every floor. Makes the elevators rather uh, crowded on the Sabbath. But that's what people have done. They, they've made the law their God, not God. So what was the purpose of the law? First, we learned that the law was to be a schoolmaster, 
a guardian to the people. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law was like those Greek tutors which, with which you are familiar who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction. The law was supposed to do all of that, all of those things, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. Where did they want to be? In the presence of God. And the law was supposed to bring them that way. But for so it didn't because of them. As impossible and difficult as the law was, it still served a good purpose. Even though it was doomed to failure, it still had a lofty divine purpose. And look at Romans chapter 7. So the law is holy, and the command is holy and right and good. Does this mean that something is, that is good brought death to me? No. Sin used something that is good to bring death to me. Sin made the law fail. The people's sin made the law fail. This happened so that I could see what sin is really like. The command was used to show that sin is very sinful. NIV in the K King James Version says to show that sin is utterly sinful. Study of the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, shows us in brilliant color how destructive sin really is. The whole nation of Israel was destroyed because of the people's sin. Because of their distance from God, they didn't care. We can't play around with sin. It's like a rattlesnake. It'll bite us, destroy us, eventually kill us. It's always destructive in our lives. We need to learn. If we don't deal with sin properly, it will destroy us if we don't stay close to the Lord. So all along, God had a better way in mind. In the fullness of time, he was going to make it happen by his grace You've heard three of us now say that all of the offerings, all of the feasts, all of the law pointed to a Savior to come a better way. The writer to the Hebrews understood this. Look at what it says in Hebrews. I, I encourage you to go home and read this section. It's not easy to read. It's maybe not so easy to understand, but it's powerful when you study it. You know, if you can do calculus, if you can do algebra, you can figure this out, Okay? It was a better priesthood. Of course it was. Jesus was the new high priest in, according to the order of Melchizedek. Not Aaron. Needed a new way, a better priest, a better covenant. No more offerings. Aren't you glad? You don't have to worry about offerings, offerings, offerings all the time. A better ministry. Of course it was a better ministry. It was ministry through the Holy Spirit. Better tabernacle, better sacrifice. Better sacrifice was Jesus. Once for all, he didn't have to do it over and over again. A better tabernacle. You're the tabernacle now. A better sanctification. Perfect in God's sight because of Jesus. Friends, this section of Scripture makes it clear that the law was doomed to fail, but God's grace would prevail 
Jesus' death on the cross gave us a whole new way. And some of the people understood the purpose for all their sacrifices and rules about sin. There was always a remnant who got it. They weren't all off the reservation. David got it. Isaiah got it. Jeremiah got it. All the prophets got it. Constantly telling the people. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, quoting David's understanding of this whole uh, thing. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and this is quoting from Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, David wrote, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or, off or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the Scriptures. You get to Isaiah. And, and Isaiah basically says in chapter 1, the very first chapter, he says, stop this meeting with your solemn assemblies and your sacrifices. He says, I hate them. You lift your hands up to me in prayer. I'm not even going to listen to you. Most of the people didn't get it. Listen carefully. Just as many Christians don't get it today. We do not understand the severity of our sin, the ugliness of sin, which keeps us from intimate fellowship with God. That's what God wants most with us, for us. Intimacy. Intimacy. The tabernacle was placed in the absolute center of the people of Israel so that they would understand that God was in the center of their lives, and he wanted them to make him the center of their lives. But unconfessed sin would hinder closeness. Now, in our better way, all our sins, if we've received Jesus as Savior, all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, future. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from him. Aren't you glad for that? Praise God for that. But present sin hinders our closeness. Present sin hinders our closeness. We often feel this distance. We know something isn't right. Sometimes we can feel ourselves drifting. And even as we feel ourselves drifting, we, we don't have the courage, we don't have the want to, we, and, and we just keep drifting. So let me ask you a question. Do you this morning feel distance between you and God? Let me pause here. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, you've never invited him to forgive your sin, then the truth is that you're far, far away from God, whether you know it or not or whether you admit it or not. You're not as bad as you could be, that's for sure, but it's clearly you're not good as you need to be. You're not good enough. 
You need the cleansing of Jesus' blood shed on the cross where he died in your place. And very simply this morning, you can say to him, Lord, I, I admit my sin. I'm a sinner through and through. Forgive my sin. I want to invite you into my life so that you'll be my new leader and I'll walk your way from now on. Not perfectly, but that'll be my intent with you as my leader. You can do that right where you sit. That's all it takes. That's the seed that you plant and then it grows from there. You grow and you grow and you grow in your Christian life. Closer, closer, closer to the Lord, we hope. But how about you who know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Have you drifted? Is there a sin that is blocking your closeness to the Lord? Have you made an idol of something, some it or him or her? You're holding on to something that clearly God does not want for you? Well, what can we do about that? Well, you know what we can do about that. Look at what God says in 1 John 1, 8, and 9. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have no sin, I'm okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. I'm not the best Christian, but who is? You know, who really is the best Christian? Nobody's perfect, right? In other words, if we're just nonchalant about our walk with God and we think that's okay, you're willing to just settle for that? We're only fooling ourselves. Several years ago, I came across a short devotional by John Piper, which I read to the Master's Men group, and I've never forgotten. I wish I'd uh, adhered to it better, but it's still a powerful thing in my memory, and I share it with you this morning and I'm basically going to read his devotional to you, and I hope that you'll stay tuned because it's probably the most important thing I'm saying all morning, okay? I'll try to read it in an interesting way, and then we'll, we'll be finished in just a couple minutes. A vague, bad feeling that you are a crummy person is not the same as conviction for sin. Feeling rotten is not the same as repentance. This morning... Piper says, I began to pray and felt unworthy to be talking to the creator of the universe. It was a vague sense of unworthiness. So I told him so. Now what? Nothing changed until I began to get specific about my sins. Crummy feelings can be useful if they lead to conviction for sins. Vague feelings of being a bad person are not very helpful. The fog of unworthiness needs to take shape into clear, dark pillars of disobedience. Then you can point to them and repent and ask for forgiveness and take aim to blow them up. So Piper says, I began to call to mind the commands I frequently break. These are the sins that came to mind. 
Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not 95%, but 100%. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Be as eager for things to go well for him as you are for things to go well for you. Do all things without grumbling. No grumbling, inside or outside. We blow this one almost every day. Cast all your anxieties on him so you are not being weighed down by it anymore, and yet we worry, worry, worry. Only say things that give grace to others, especially those closest to you. Redeem the, redeem the time. Do not fritter or dawdle. So much for any pretensions to great holiness. I'm undone. But now it's specific. I look it in the eye. I'm not whining about feeling crummy. I'm apologizing to Christ for not keeping all that he commanded. I'm broken and I'm angry at my sin. I want to kill it, not me. I'm not suicidal at this point. I'm a sin hater and a sin murderer. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death the deeds of the body. In this conflict, I hear the promise that we just saw. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Prayer feels possible and right and powerful again. End of quote. Peace. Closeness. Let me ask you, how holy is your life? The Bible's clear, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is his holiness. So we need to come before the Father with profound respect. He is holy and holy other from us. Think about this. Grasp this. But I have good news. In Christ, we can come boldly into God's very present because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid for all our sins. And when we confess our sin, our fellowship is restored into God's very presence where he wants us all the time. Now that's close, friends. And I want you to think about that a lot. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're, we're undone. We feel like Isaiah of old, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So, Father, we come today. We confess our sin anew. We want to be close to you. We really do. Not as much as you want to be close to us, but we do. We want that peace. So, Father, help us to follow your guidelines in confession and repentance. And then, Lord, today we come before you with our offerings, our tithes and offerings, just to say thank you for this brand new way purchased by Jesus.
And we give liberally and freely and generously for all you've done for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.